begin. And welcome to Mass Ave. We are here talking about sanctuary cities. It's been a big topic in the news uh, over the past several weeks. Um, we have Hans von Spukowski here from our legal center to fill us in on it. Um, I know Brad has also been doing some work on sanctuary cities with Hans. So, Yeah, Hans, so a couple weeks ago, uh, Attorney General Sessions announced that they were going to be removing some federal funding to sanctuary cities that did not comply with federal law. Could you uh, elaborate on that a bit? Sure, but l- let me first explain to folks what a sanctuary city is. Sanctuary cities basically do two things. One, they tell all their local law enforcement people, you are forbidden from sending any information to the feds if you arrest or detain somebody who you uh, believe is an illegal alien. Um, the second thing they do is they refuse to honor what are called federal detainer warrants. In other words, if if ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, knows that a local uh, police department or sheriff is holding an, an alien for some kind of crime, uh, and this is somebody who's deportable, um, they will issue what they call a detainer warrant. It's a, it's a document that goes to the local law enforcement and says, look, when you're done with this guy, call us up. Don't release him into the community. Call us up so we can come pick him up and deport him. And sanctuary cities refuse to do that. And, of course, the results of that, um, all you have to do is look at the terrible story about Kate Steinle, young woman killed in San Francisco two years ago. Uh, San Francisco had him in jail. They were going to uh, uh, prosecute him for drug charges. They decided to drop the drug charges, and they refused to honor. There was actually a detainer warrant from the feds on this illegal alien. They refused to honor it. They released him. That's why he was on the street and able to kill Kate Steinle. So that's what a sanctuary policy is. Now, what what General Sessions said is um, uh, no sanctuary city is going to be eligible for grants from the Department of Justice. And specifically, they were talking about two grants. Uh, the, the Justice Department gets about a little over $4 billion a year from Congress that it can hand out to local cities and towns all over the country for the purpose of improving their law enforcement. And one of the requirements of applying for those grants is you have to certify you are in compliance with all federal laws. And it makes perfect sense not to give grant money to cities and counties who are not only not in compliance with federal law, but in fact are saying, we're going to do everything we can to obstruct enforcement of federal law. And that's what they were talking about, those specific grant programs inside the Justice Department. And I know there's been some um, issues raised. Some people say that sanctuary cities are allowed to exist under federalism. What is your um, what is your well, how does that fit in? Well, for example, um, forbidding local law enforcement from even telling the feds that they're holding an illegal alien. Mm-hmm. There's actually a provision in federal immigration law that says you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And um, that is not a violation of federalism because the the federal government isn't saying to locals, you have to do this. Mm-hmm. They're just saying you can't forbid your local people from doing this. And in fact, um, there's there's a case on this. The city of New York, uh, when this law was first passed 20 years ago, they actually went to court and made that very argument. They said this was a violation of federalism. You're trying to force us to do something. The court threw out New York City's lawsuit saying, look, um, the, the feds aren't trying to force you to do anything. Uh, they're just saying you can't you can't uh, forbid what's basically an information exchange, and that is not forcing locals to to accomplish it or do anything. 
So the the sanctuary cities issue has kind of risen back up to uh, top of the news cycle over the last week. Um, ironically enough, in San Francisco, uh, Judge Obama appointed judge by the name of William Oreck um, issued a stopgap on that order um, from General Sessions. Could you elaborate on the details of that decision? Yeah, Ju- Judge Oreck. It was almost like he was. He saw an opportunity to write a piece of propaganda against against the Trump administration. And why do I say that? He issued a nationwide injunction against the cutoff of uh, federal funds uh, to sanctuary cities by the federal government. But look, this was all based on um, an executive order signed by President Trump. And the executive order signed by President Trump has very narrow language. It doesn't say it's going to cut off all federal funding, you know, entitlement programs, things like Medicaid or Medicare. It, it in fact, talks simply about the grant programs of the Department of Justice, exactly what General Sessions was talking about. Yet the judge took that very narrow language and wrote his order as if the Trump administration was threatening to cut off all federal funds of all kinds, including entitlement funding, and said, well, you can't do that. But what none of the media really reported when they said, oh, injunctions been issued against the Trump administration, it can't cut off federal funding, is actually in the last two, two sentences of the judge's order, which was about 50 pages, he says, this injunction won't apply to grant programs that basically have as a condition compliance with federal law. So in other words, uh, that injunction does not prevent General Sessions from doing exactly what he said he was going to do, which was cut off access to those specific uh, law enforcement grant programs. And I think all, I guess, signs are pointing to the Department of Justice appealing this decision um, and it ending up in the infamous Ninth Circuit, right. uh, where do you, <laughs> which we've become all too familiar with in 2017. Um, where do you see this playing out in the legal system uh, over the next year? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's terrible, isn't it, that when people mention the Ninth Circuit, we all start laughing? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you can't help it. Well, you can't because, um, you know, the last time I looked at the numbers, I think it was something like 85 to 90 percent of the Ninth Circuit decisions that actually are accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court for review are overturned. Wow. I mean, that's how far uh, out they are, so, so far out of the mainstream when it comes to legal decisions. So, you know, I suspect um, the Trump administration will lose in the Ninth Circuit. That's expected. But if it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, I think they're going to win. And they're going to win for two reasons. One, as I said, Judge Oreck's decision goes far beyond and way outside of what uh, the Trump administration actually said it was going to do. And second... Um, like I said, this issue has already been decided uh, by a prior court decision when the city of New York tried to sue and say you, this, this uh, part of federal immigration law was unconstitutional. The court said, no, it's not. So once it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, the Trump administration is going to win. And I know there seems to have been a lot of movement on the part of sanctuary cities to kind of put their foot down on this or California <laughs> proposing becoming a sanctuary state. Right. What, are, what are your thoughts on, on those challenges? Well, what people should understand is that what they're doing by putting in a sanctuary policy is making themselves a sanctuary for criminal aliens. Because in essence, what they're saying is, is that when we, when we arrest and convict – an alien for a local crime, you know, and it could be anything from burglary to larceny to sexual assault. Once they have finished their sentence, 
we would rather release them back into our local community where they can potentially victimize more people. We would rather do that than call up the feds so they can pick, come pick up this person and deport them back to their home country. That, to me, is absolutely reckless policy. And anyone who thinks that this doesn't result in uh, a lot of victimization, uh, all you got to do is look at there's several reports been put out by uh, GAO, Government Accountability Office, where they actually looked at the criminal histories of illegal aliens who were in uh, federal, state, and local prisons. And many of them are repeat offenders. The crimes they have uh, convicted of were everything from uh, murder to rape to sexual assault to larceny to, to burglary. I mean, they're not in federal prison for immigration offenses. They're in prison because they have done bad things. And again, what these cities are saying is we'd rather these people stay in our communities than uh, be thrown out of the country. Well, I think it's uh, it's obvious that this is a hot issue for the Department of Justice. They took uh, action on it right away. Right. I appreciate you joining us today, Hans, to come in and clarify sanctuary cities and talk about the topic a little bit. Thanks for having me. Thank Absolutely. You. We'll be right back with more from Mass Ave. Hi, this is Rob Bluey, Vice President of Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Signal. Check out Blueprint for Balance, a federal budget. This Heritage Foundation budget plan balances the budget within seven years and cuts spending by more than $10 trillion. To find it, go to heritage.org and search for budget or spending. Did you know you can now listen to all of our events through SoundCloud or just by visiting our events page on heritage.org? You now have access to hundreds of events and compelling discussions on policy issues from your car, on the train, or the comfort of your own home. Visit heritage.org events for more information or search for the Heritage Foundation on SoundCloud. Are you looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. Each Tuesday in The Agenda, you will learn what issues Heritage scholars on Capitol Hill are working on, what position conservatives are taking, and links to our in-depth research. The Agenda also provides information on important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, as well as media interviews from our experts. Sign up for The Agenda on Heritage.org today. Welcome back to Mass Ave. And today we have Ed Hazelmeyer, a Senior Research Fellow in Health Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Um, Emily, could you explain why we have Ed in with us today? Yeah, so obviously another busy week on Capitol Hill. Uh, we had the AHCA passed in the House yesterday, um, and I think a lot of people are wondering what this means for the future of healthcare and Obamacare specifically. So, Ed, can you give us maybe a little bit of an overview of, of what's in the bill and what changes? Well, so basically, the, the American Healthcare Act is what they're calling it, and uh, the House as you mentioned, passed this yesterday uh, narrowly. Mm -hmm. uh, that is really sort of bringing down the curtain on Act 1. Act 2 is it now goes to the Senate, and I would expect that in the Senate there'll be some significant changes. Uh, the first thing to understand is that this bill is what is called a reconciliation bill. So it's really a piece of legislation designed to address the federal budget. Uh, that's significant because it limits the provisions that can be dealt with in the bill, <laughs> mainly their spending and tax provisions. So it repeals uh, the taxes and a lot of the spending or re reorganizes the spending that occurred under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. The sticking point has been 
up until now in the House that a lot of what Obamacare did was, in addition to the federal government spend taxing and spending, also the federal government regulated private insurance in ways that drove up the cost of care. And this is where a lot of the objections to the Affordable Care Act or mm -hmm. Obamacare have come from. Uh, these are people objecting because the result has been that the cost of their insurance has gone through the roof. They've had higher deductibles. Uh, there have been insurers exiting the market, et cetera. And so the, the issue for the last month has been, does this bill do enough to get at uh, those regulations? What, in a f what came out in the House and what was approved the other day is essentially a kind of compromise that says, well, we, Congress, are not repealing all of that stuff, but what we're going to do is allow states to opt out of it. And so that raises the interesting question of, you know, who might opt out and, and why. But that's the framework. Okay. And, after, yeah, I mean, after the bill was passed, they all hopped onto a bus and, and <laughs> headed to the Rose Garden to the White House to kind of celebrate, which I think is, is something that it's – it's understandable. This has been a long time coming. What changes do you see coming in the Senate, though? You mentioned that there were going to be significant changes, um, and then they got to send that bill right back for approval in the House again, correct? Yes, though I would expect that if it gets out of the Senate, that it would just get a straight up or down vote in the House. I wouldn't see another round of amending or changing it okay. uh, happen in the House. I mean, we've seen this with other pieces of legislation. So, I, you know, it's actually in some ways tougher to get it out of the Senate. Uh, in terms of them celebrating, I, you know, I, they, I, I understand why they feel, uh, uh, you know, want to celebrate and want to uh, promote this because, of course, they ran on the idea that they were going to repeal it. Uh, I would simply caution that we're not there yet. This is just, as I said, Act 1. We still have to see how Act 2 plays out. And, you know, you mentioned that a lot of what this does is um, free the states from the insurance mandate of Obamacare, give them the option. Can you kind of go, I know you also recently wrote on this. Can you go kind of explain a little bit yeah. how that would work in the state level? Yeah. So the, it sets up a waiver mechanism. It provides additional money to the states to help them try to stabilize their insurance markets. The, the, the thing we have to understand if we step back for some context mm -hmm. here is that a lot of the focus about Obamacare has been on the people who got subsidized coverage through the law. Right. But the real damage has been in the markets outside of the exchanges where people are buying individual coverage or small group coverage, in other words, coverage for the workers in a small employer. Uh, and that's typically a, a, a plan that they buy from an insurer for, for their workers and, their, and those uh, workers' dependents. Those policies outside the exchange have been subjected to a slew of inc cost-increasing mandates, the essential benefits, the minimum value requirements, et cetera, in Obamacare that have driven up the premiums. And that's what people got upset about. I mm -hmm. mean, if you think about why were people clamoring to get the bill repealed, well, it's because they were seeing their premiums go through the roof. They were seeing their deductibles go up. And they weren't getting anything in return. They weren't getting any subsidies. Uh, and those are the people who voted for President Trump and voted for the Republicans. So it's kind of their base on this issue. And, and that's who they need to address. So what the law does is it allows states 
to apply for a waiver to get some money to help stabilize the market, but also to uh, uh, then, as part of that process, uh, set up alternative rules and not have to follow the Obamacare rules, and the uh, and the expectation being that those will then bring down the cost of coverage. I think what will happen in the Senate, or at least I'm hoping what will happen in the Senate, is some of this will be um, made more automatic. I think that's the way to go. So if you say to a state, hey, okay, you've got a waiver to, to for you know this money, then you write the legislation so that as soon as the state gets that, then they can automatically do the following instead of having to apply for each bit and piece. Well, I think that kind of gives us a great overview of, of what we're looking at going into the next battle in the Senate. So thanks so much, Ed, for joining us. And that concludes our episode. Thanks to Hans and Ed for joining us to explain these two issues. Thanks for listening in. Tune in next week and be sure to check us out on Facebook at MassApp.